Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends and feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the mayor answers back to accusations he knew more about LRT rising costs than he was letting on. And although we accept climate change, do we need to be scaring the hell out of the kids? And Life Labs has been hacked. Does the world know the result of your poop test? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The Ontario government says it will not release a report on the LRT project in Hamilton as it contains sensitive information on the other side of all of this. Uh, We're now finding out through uh, an interesting article on the Hamilton Spec by Andrew Dreschel. The headline is Mayor Fred kept soaring LRT estimates in private meetings with Mulroney secret from council. To talk more about all of this, Mayor City of Hamilton, Fred Eisenberger, he is with us now. Fred, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Problem, Scott. Anytime. So uh, thoughts on this column, thoughts on this headline, Mm -hmm. and uh, what can you tell us about this meeting with uh, Minister Mulroney that uh, appears to be kept private? Well, it's also uh, Mr. Dressel's entitled to his opinion, but uh, the, the the reality was that they uh, they came to us uh, and asked us to uh, sign a non-disclosure agreement, which basically uh, ties your hands from sharing anything with the uh, with the community or anyone else that asks about the uh, the, the the conversations that we're having. Uh, we we declined to do so. Uh, then many weeks later, they uh, brought forward some very high-level numbers about uh, you know costs that they believe were uh, were, were increasing for the uh, for the uh, the project. <clears throat> Never once indicating that they were prepared to end the project <clears throat> or they were going to cancel the project. Uh, just that uh, they wanted us to be aware of those cost concerns. And uh, we said, well, the high-level numbers uh, don't make sense. Uh, we had them assessed by our our transit folks and. Uh, Obviously, made some calls to determine, uh, you know, where where these things were coming from, and uh, got back to them and said the, these numbers aren't uh, aren't aren't realistic. We uh, we don't believe that they're uh, rational at this point, uh, and therefore, uh, you know, give us more detail uh, you know, as to how you came to these uh, these uh, numbers. Uh, that's the kind of work that uh, the mayor is supposed to do before we uh, you know go running off the council with uh, you know a lack of uh, information, and all the way through that. Uh, their worry was, and my worry was, that we were in the middle of a procurement process. So the, there were bidders out there, and the, the the sanctity of that process is you uh, you know the, the, any, any information you release uh, in the middle of that uh, could compromise the uh, the bidding process. And so that's something that we uh, both agreed should not happen. And so uh, we both agreed to uh, you know until such time as we had uh, agreed on the uh, set of information that we were prepared to share. Uh, we decided not to release uh, any information. When the government, so that was the, the essence. That's the essence of the conversation we had. And uh, you know, in my mind, uh, it was the uh, the right call to make. And you know, when other uh, other people are the mayor, they'll be put in these positions, and they can make their own determination as to uh, whether they uh, make that that sort of a call. But the reality is that we have a uh, you know a working relationship. We try to have a working relationship with the province and. We have uh, dialogues on many things that uh, may never come to council at the end of the day. Uh, but ultimately, uh, you know, any any important message that, uh, like, we're, uh, we're thinking about redoing this project or we're thinking about a different direction or we're thinking about uh, canceling, none of that ever came up. 
And if it had, we would have gone to counsel immediately. If you decided not to sign a non-disclosure agreement, why would you just not tell counsel uh, that the meeting had happened and, and what had happened in regard to the meeting? Well, because we were maintaining a confidentiality on the integrity of the uh, the RFP process. So there's bidders out there that are uh, that are putting pen to paper and looking at uh, putting bids together to uh, you know three international bidders that are looking to put pen to paper to uh, to put bids on this project. Our answer to them uh, all the way through is we have a process uh, that's called the RFP process. Uh, we need to get to the end of the RFP process so we can all know what the numbers are. Uh, they never indicated that they were going to truncate that. They they actually said they were concerned about information getting out there that would uh, compromise that process. And so, uh, you know, that the ability to compromise that process could have happened through uh, through information sharing with counsel. So you're, uh, in other words, uh, I- what we're seeing in this column today in the spec, you're saying uh, that this was between you and Mulroney and there was no reason at this point to tell the rest of counsel because the procurement process had started and you were looking for bidders on the project. Well, we had bidders on the project, so uh, they were they were actually finalizing their bids, and that the bids were were to be done, uh, you know, sometime in March. Uh, it's been a year that they've been working on these bids, and so uh, you know they were you know halfway or three quarters of the way through their bidding process. So obviously, they're putting numbers on on uh, all of the project costs, and any information that gets leaked out that could compromise that would actually hurt and harm the uh, the, the bidding process. But so if there are concerns, what you, just, what you, what but you if just there... said a minute ago is essentially it. But if there are concerns of cost overruns and the price getting higher on this, is that not something everyone should be aware of? Well, they, they would have been uh, the moment the, the, the bids are finished, and then we would know exactly what we, we'd have to deal with. So it's not, uh, it's not like, uh, the, you know, there's a, we, we don't get free information on any of the bids we do. So uh, any procurement process that happens out there, the, uh, the procurement process happens, uh, you're, it's supposed to be independent, uh, we're not supposed to interfere, uh, councillors shouldn't interfere. Uh, you know, uh, members of parliament shouldn't interfere, and that procurement needs to come to a conclo- closure. And then we all know what the numbers are, and then we know what to deal with. Uh, wh- wh- how would this have changed had you signed that non-disclosure agreement? What information would have would have been received then? Do you think? Well, I, I, you know, I, it's hard to say at this point because we were uh, we were working on uh, you know them sharing information with us, uh, our questioning that information uh, and the assumptions on that information. We had a whole list of questions. I think we've just released a letter to the premier asking the very questions that we were going to ask uh, from the material that we that we received on Thursday, and uh, had those uh, had those questions not been satisfactorily answered, and they made any indication that they were going to uh, truncate this process, uh, we would have gone to council directly. But no, didn't the fact that they're questioning these numbers and saying that this looks to be more expensive than what it actually is? Uh, right. did, did you did, you didn't sense thing you didn't sense that they were obviously questioning all of this and whether the money was still there? Did you did you think at that point to say is this still good? Are we still moving forward? What's happening here? It, it just right. seems right. as if we were avoiding information. Uh, what, what, what happened here? Well, so so all the way through, uh, we you know the messages from the previous uh, from the premier and from uh, Minister Yurik previously. And from uh, from the people that we were meeting with, uh, there were no indications at any point in time that they were prepared to uh, end this process. Uh, we, uh, but we but Minister Mulroney was and, obviously questioning the numbers here. Did that not raise concern for you? Sure, it did, and and that's why we questioned the numbers as well. 
And so we we said, uh, you know, we 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 don't understand uh, why the numbers have changed so appreciably. We want to be able to understand that. Give us greater clarity on those issues. Provide for us a more comprehensive, detailed list on the estimates that you're providing. And you know, and and minister, these are estimates. Uh, the only true way to know what the ultimate numbers are going to be is to get to the end of the RFP process. And that was a message that we delivered them, to them, you know, right from the very beginning and up until up until uh, Thursday. So how do how do we ever come to, uh, you know, making estimates be the uh, the final determination of uh, where this project goes? That makes no sense at all. Uh, the... And everyone is now questioning those estimates. I mean, uh, you know, all those estimates were inflated. We said they were inflated. We asked them to give us greater detail. Uh, we asked them for an opportunity to uh, to assess the uh, the information they provided on Thursday. Uh, we were in, uh, expecting to have a meeting with them uh, Monday or Tuesday. I- instead of that, they actually said we're coming in Monday. Didn't tell us why, and then canceled the project. Uh, at the end of the day, it seems that they don't they're not prepared to pay anything more than one billion dollars. Did we not see that coming? Uh, they've said that all along, and there's a there's a, a, a memorandum of understanding that actually contemplated that. Uh, they weren't even aware of that memorandum of understanding, which is uh, you know an indicator to us that they weren't really very, very well informed on the project uh, itself. The memorandum of understanding says that if there's a cost overrun in terms of capital dollars, that we had the ability together to approach the federal government or change the scope of the project. And so the scope would mean uh, you, you could shorten the project to, to fit the billion-dollar capital cost, or you could, uh, you know, move, remove a couple of stations. Uh, you know, all of that could have been uh, discussed and, and looked into. Uh, obviously, we never got to that point, but they they weren't even aware that uh, that that was in our memorandum of understanding in the first place. I've already uh, indicated on many occasions that uh, I've approached the uh, the federal government, who have been receptive to you know, covering, uh, you know, some additional overages if uh, a higher cost came in. And uh, they were certainly aware of that. Um, other councillors, Councillor Whitehead's uh, concerned that uh, you had more information than you were sharing with council. Are you worried that uh, leadership is slipping within council, your leadership? Uh, no. And you know what? Uh, if uh, they can, I mean, if they want to, you know, send it off to the integrity commissioner and, uh, you know, test my, uh, my my thought process in this, they're free to do that. Uh, you know, the staff team, the city manager and, uh, you know, the senior leadership team, uh, you know, work through this together. And uh, we were anticipating uh, an ongoing conversation with the province to come to some sort of a conclusion uh, that we could then bring to council. But uh, we never got the opportunity to do that. So, you know, when, uh, when uh, you know, Councillor Whitehead is the mayor or Councillor Clark is the mayor, uh, they, will, they, will be, they will be put into these positions and they will have to make a judgment call. And, uh, uh, you know, it will uh, we'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, what they decide at that point, too. I am pretty comfortable with the process that uh, we went through. Uh, we had a, uh, an RFP process to protect. Uh, that was uh, fundamental for me and it was fundamental, I understood, for the minister and the ministry uh, however, uh, you know, obviously they didn't uh, care for it all that much because they decided to, uh, to to end the process and truncate this. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm completely comfortable with the decisions that we've made. Uh, I, I understand that uh, some are unhappy that uh, they didn't get to hear chapter and verse of every moment of every conversation that we had. 
But that's the reality of uh, my being able to liaise with other levels of government and make a determination as to uh, when these issues need to come to council. So because the, bid is, the bidding process was, uh, was happening, the, you, were, you felt it was not uh, wise to bring this information to the public, to the council? Correct. Because you're, you're, you're sharing information that could compromise the bidding process. All right, I Mayor. Fr- pretty easy, I think that's a pretty pretty easy thing to understand. So, if uh, you know you're bidding on a car and and uh, you know you you actually let somebody know exactly how much you're prepared to pay, you might as well stop the bidding because you you've uh, you've already tipped your hand. And so mm-hmm. uh, you know the equation isn't much different. And so uh, you know if people uh, you know don't don't understand that, and uh, you know they they really need to appreciate that this is a major project in the city of Hamilton. There are bids underway that are happening as we speak or were, uh, that are closing in just mere months. Uh, that was the objective, and that's when we would have known exactly what the costing would have been, and we would have known exactly how we would needed to deal with that, whether we needed to go to the federal government or whether we needed to go uh, to the province and ask for additional dollars or if we needed to change the scope. That was really the moment in time that we would all know collectively, publicly, exactly what the numbers would be. What happens now, Mayor Fred? What happens now? Uh, don't know yet. Uh, we're still assessing that. And, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm obviously connecting with people in the community that uh, have an interest in this uh, to see where we can go with this. And ultimately, uh, you know, we'll have to bring all of this to council and they'll have to make a decision as to where we go. Uh, I would, uh, you know, we're still trying to liaise with the province to uh, get a better understanding of uh, their, uh, their, uh, their assumptions around uh, the numbers that they put forward, uh, which, uh, you know, in, in the eyes of many, not just me, don't make any sense. The comparisons uh, between our project and other projects and why we got picked on and uh, other projects did not, uh, again, uh, needs greater clarity. And I think the, uh, the premier and the, uh, the minister have to explain. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, we have to deal with uh, the circumstances that we're facing and uh, we'll continue working to see if we can get the best arrangement for the city of Hamilton at the end of the day. Uh, having said that, uh, if, if they're true to their word, uh, whenever have we had a billion dollars invested in the city of Hamilton. So I want the LRT project. I think it's the, uh, the bigger, better investment. But at the end of the day, if uh, it uh, doesn't come to pass and they deliver the billion dollars to the city of Hamilton, we've still gained uh, you know, significant benefit mm. that otherwise we might not have had. Fred Eisenberger, Mayor for the city of Hamilton. Fred, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Travis Danraj, a Queen's Park reporter, Global News. Uh, he is with us now. Travis, my head is spinning from all of this. Uh, uh, and, and now, obviously, uh, it doesn't look like the Conservatives are going to release any sort of numbers that justify their position, correct? Well, I mean, bottom line here is that people were not upfront. The government, uh, the municipal government, and also the province was not upfront with the people of Hamilton uh, b- until the very last minute, the 11th hour. And we saw the result of that. Uh, you know, I've been talking, I've been listening into the interview with the mayor. and also, What about the procurement process and the whole RFP thing? Does that hold water? Uh, yeah, I, I suppose so. And I mean, to a degree, it, it sounds as though 
you know, the the province is throwing the mayor under the bus a little bit. But I, I don't think he gets off scot-free on this, obviously. You know, uh, he's saying council's ultimately going to make a decision as to where this goes next. Well, council, uh, you know, uh, in, in some people's eyes, should have known about this long before we got to this big announcement that did not happen in, in Hamilton because the minister had to be rushed back to Queen's Park uh, the other day. Now, you know, the, the government is telling me that they're not releasing the information on this and the review because they say it has uh, market sensitive information on that and that's why the whole release can't uh, the whole report can't be released but they say portions of the document have been given to the mayor's office and other stakeholders thus far all right here we go uh travis danraj with us queen's park bureau chief for global news thanks for draw uh standing by travis we appreciate this make sure you're watching global news tonight at 5 30 and 6 thanks travis thanks scott you're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's move on. Uh, interesting article in the uh, National Post. We're going to bring in Alyssa Freeman, uh, Alyssa PR here, and talk about this. And this is something that I've discussed on the show a couple of times. And, and, and I want to start this off by saying uh, I'm not a climate change denier. I think where the disagreement is is in how we get there. And there doesn't seem to be enough chatter. Uh, There's chatter on the extremes. Either you buy in or you don't buy in. Either the world's coming to an end or it's all BS. And the solution is somewhere in the middle. And uh, again, I've yet to talk to a professor who has said that this, meaning the transition from fossil fuels off of fossil fuels, is going to take anywhere from 20 to 50 years. So instead of having those realistic discussions about what it's going to like, what it's going to be like to transform ourselves, it seems that we're listening to the extremists. And we have to do this, and we have to do this, and if we don't do this, the, the world is coming to an end. We've got eight years, and the world is coming to an end, or 10 years, or whatever it is. Uh, interesting article uh, in the National Post. And, and the headline is, we're going to die. Toronto mother says, young daughter terrified by school presentation on climate change. I'll read the first uh, little bit to you. A Toronto mother says a confusing school presentation involving teen activist Greta Thunberg and a ticking clock left her young daughter fearing Earth's intimate demise. And schools should be more careful about what they are teaching seven-year-olds. At least one child yelled, I don't want to die during the presentation on climate change delivered to the grade twos and threes on October 4th. A group of seven and eight-year-olds had gathered in the library at Elm Bank Junior Middle Academy in Etobicoke to watch the video of the speech delivered uh, at the UN Climate Action Summit on uh, September 23rd. In her remarks, a visibly upset Greta accuses the world leaders of failing future generations, ignoring climate change, and stealing her childhood. And in this, there's a countdown clock, and if the world, uh, if we don't do this, the world's coming to an end, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da, you know the whole story. Uh, Again, uh, to me, this is extreme activism. It doesn't help us find a solution. And it, it seems that we're... Again, I, I'm, I'm, I love the passion and the dedication of Greta and those like her, but I think, I think we're forgetting about balance in all of this. And the extremists will say there is no such thing as balance when the end of the world is coming. What happens after 8 to 10 years and we're all still here? Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman. Alyssa PR, she's a public relations consultant and on the air now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. As always, Scott. We have talked about this uh, a couple of times, and this has always been a concern uh, for me. I I hear it from my kids who are in school, 
and, and such. And, and it reminds me of being a kid in the 70s when Ontario's license plate said, keep it beautiful, before they went to yours to discover, because we made it beautiful, and then everybody wanted to discover it, I guess. But acid rain, cleaning up the Great Lakes, uh, the ozone layer was depleting, uh, uh, leaded gasoline, uh, the rainforest was supposed to be gone by the end of the 80s, but instead we handled all of this. We moved through it. We cleaned up what we need to clean up. Why does this, why is this being painted as an end of the world scenario? How is that helping the movement at all? Well, I think it helps the movement in the short term, but I don't think it helps the movement in the long term. So, you know, when activist groups get really loud and in a very extreme way, they get a lot of attention. Remember um, ACT UP? And that was part mm. of the uh, AIDS coalition. And yep. they made a lot of noise. You know, during the 80s, it was all anybody could talk about because people were hammering home the message with the uh, underscored by the most dire, and rightly so, consequences. You know, and if you want to talk about AIDS now, it's really hard to get that conversation going because people don't see the importance anymore. So, you know, the louder you scream at the onset it's harder to maintain that over the long run. So I think that the Environmental Coalition has been talking a long time and trying to get their point across about reducing global emissions. And I, I believe that they felt that nobody was listening. I think people were giving them lip service, but nobody was creating anything actionable. So how to create some, something actionable? Go to the extreme and find the right type of orator, such as someone like Greta Thunberg, uh, to carry your message. Although, and you and I have talked about this, Scott, Greta actually dialed back some of her rhetoric last week, and I believe is when she was talking at the Madrid conference, and she said, you know, people have uh, accused me of being, you know, frightening and frightening children, and that we are coming on too strong and, you know, there might be some merit to that. So I think she made a commitment that when she's going to talk about climate change, she's no longer going to do it with the uh, under, underlined by the extremist language that she's been using thus far. A little late for that. Uh, it's got to the point where nobody can even question Greta. If anybody now, mind you, those that have taken shots at her, such as the Brazilian president and Donald Trump, um, you certainly haven't been fair, but it seems nobody wants to weigh in and say, you know, let's keep this all in perspective. Let's find the balance here. Yeah, but they weigh in by their actions, Scott. So, you know, there wasn't anything signed after two weeks, plus two days, because they were running behind on their agenda at the Madrid conference. Nothing was signed and everything was pushed into 2020. So, therefore, the conference for all the speakers that were there and the entire programming was labeled a near failure because nobody signed on. So it seems that you can shout from the rooftops, but the small handful of organizations that actually have the most control over global emissions, if they're not going to play, then they're just not going to play. So when you don't get anybody signed on, you have to think, well, okay, uh, what are we doing wrong? Is that evidence? Is that evidence that this discussion has become too ex- extreme? That it's being ta- it's being discussed on the fringes. Well, and that it's being anything actionable is being pushed off until next year. Now, I agree something needs to be done about climate change, and I agree that we can no longer 
um, ignore the signs right in front of us. I mean, there was something in the paper today about, you know, the thaw in Labrador, which normally doesn't ever happen. So, you know, there are signs all around us. I, I think that unless you can create a rhetoric that speaks directly to those organizations that can actually make a difference, that's when you'll see change. But until then, right now, it's all just talk. So what happens in eight to ten years from now? I hate to think. You know, I mean, from what people are saying, or people, i.e. experts are saying, is that, you know, the situation will be more dire than it is right now. Yet, you know, I'm listening to your introduction, and you're saying everybody's worried about the, the rainforest. Everybody was worried about acid rain. Everybody was... You know, so things were done, and these things are no longer on our radar. Um, it, 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 it why why are we to assume that, that, that we won't find a solution for this? Why are we to assume that this is a more drastic fight than anything else? And is, it, it, is, this, is this more of a movement using climate change to, to send a message or, or to deliver their own agenda? In other words, has this been hijacked? I don't know. I don't think I want to say that at this point. I think that there is a lot of science that points to the fact that we... I'm not saying there isn't a lot of way. science, and I'm not, saying, I'm not denying that there's climate change, and like you, I'm not denying that something needs to be done. But there also, hysterica, hysteria is stopping us from finding a solution because it's just making people more cynical. And that's the problem. So I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, when people are cynical about everybody screaming at them, then they're just going to sit on their hands and not do anything. But that's not what you want to happen. You want, you want things to happen. You want measures put into place. You want policies put into place. So, you know, human nature, if somebody wants to quit smoking, yeah, there are some people who will quit tomorrow. But by and large, people need to go along a continuum of change in order to be able to complete the final action, you know, first you have to start considering it, then you have to contemplate it, then you have to try it, and, and these things take time. So I don't think that you can uh, divide that between human behavior change and getting companies to change their ways. Perhaps, you know, they have been going along sort of the stepped approach before, but have not seen any action. And, and that's why, you know, Greta Thunberg is, is being so, um, you know, hailed as a, as a revolutionary because the message is resonating. Well, her message is resonating with everyday people. I don't think it's resonating with the people who can actually make the changes. Uh, time person of the year, that's resonation. It is resonation. But is that a word? That. Uh, <laughs> I think I just made a word up. Yeah, well, that's okay. I just repeated it, so therefore it really is a word. There it is. We've got you a know, new word. I think that that resonates with people like you and me, but for people who pull the strings, not so sure. Yeah. All right. Uh, Hamilton loses its LRT. Uh, half the city happy, half the city sad. I'm not sure if that's, you know, as far as the actual numbers on, on what the ratio is here. Um, but it seems that our city council dilly-dallied enough and got us into another government, which is one of austerity. You know, I'm thinking the liberals run up the credit card, the conservatives uh, try to pay it down. That goes over and over and over. It's a cycle we've seen in Canada and Canadian politics forever. Uh, that being said, it, it appears that either way, the conservative party uh, walks out of this 
the exact same way they walked in, in the sense that uh, Hamilton, largely an NDP uh, city or a city that elects people who are never in power. We've got a government here who uh, is says they're still going to honor the one billion dollars. It's just not going to cover the price, the cost of an LRT. Uh, and everybody is blaming everyone else for this. It's it's unbelievable the way this has all transpired. Well, I hate to say it, but and you know my husband's from Hamilton, so I do have some sense of. Is that the part that you hate to say, is that your husband's from Hamilton? No, no, no I'm I sorry. Feel I, like I feel like that's giving me the credibility. Yes, go ahead. And when I go to functions in the city, there's, in Hamilton, the one thing that people always say is, well, we don't want to become Toronto. Yeah. But if you're positioning yourself as, uh, you know, offering housing that's more affordable, the ease of getting back and forth, um, you know, on the go uh, to, from Hamilton, Toronto... You, you can have it both ways, and I find that that's always been the city council. Yeah. It's a city council that it specializes in stasis, right? Yeah. So, you know, one step forward, two steps back. I mean, you can start with the stadium. Yeah, Where absolutely. Originally, they wanted to put the stadium right by the yep. go, yep. right? Well, am yep. I not correct? Yep. No, absolutely. And, and yep. then they decided, no, we're going to put it in the East End. Yeah, yeah. And yep. I've been to that stadium. I've seen where it is. I'm not saying it's in the middle of nowhere, but it's in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. It's not city so building. Did, did, did the retail and whatnot that was supposed to spring up as a result happen? No. Mm. Did people get to make a few more bucks by offering to park cars on their lawns? Yes. Mm. But that's not economic realization. Yeah. So here you have, you know, uh, a gift horse in the mouth where they're going to give you LRT. And as the city grows, you need infrastructure. You need transportation. Look at the mess that Toronto was in. We have, what, two and a half lines Mm. of uh, subway? And, you know, now we're building more and more light rail. But honestly, we're 50 years behind because nobody wanted to spend the money. So all Hamilton has to do, all the councillors have to do, is look down the 401 and see what the mess is as your city grows. So if nobody, you know, has the guts to say, you know, transportation will grow the economy and will grow infrastructure, you know, you go to London, England. In London, every corner is a beehive of activity. Why? Because you can access it by a subway stop. Yeah. And if you even look here, you know, I'm sitting here in Vaughan, and I am looking now, you know, towards Woodbridge, and I see, you know, two buildings three that are almost completed, and a couple cranes. Why? Because at 400 and Highway 7, there's a subway stop. There's transportation. So if you take that, that is just going to help build up the city, not tear it down and not transform it into something that you're afraid of. And it drives me crazy. Now, I understand that you're supposed to still have the $1 billion and that it'll be spent on Buses. Buses. We get lots of buses for that. Yeah, well, it'll be spent on projects that'll be, what, there's a council being struck or a task And here's force. the other thing. That money would have been spent anyway on infrastructure upgrades. Yeah. That's the way I'm looking at it. I think so, too. And, you know, they're going to strike a task force because that's what they do. That's, that's just process, right? So you'll strike a task force, and in about a year, probably, you'll come up with something that the province wants to fund anyways and that they're on the hook for regardless. Sure. So, I mean, I, you know, I think that, the, you know, that's just sort of the, my political view of the problem. I think that structurally, you know, the way that these numbers are created as a bid to begin with, I believe that that is very problematic and that, you know, numbers are lowballed. 
so that when things finally, you know, when the, look at the Pan Am Games, yeah. right? It was yeah. supposed to cost X, and it was, then it costed Y. Yeah. The same thing with this. It's the same thing. And I think it all starts with Infrastructure Ontario. All right, uh, a couple of minutes left. Uh, Ronna Ambrose looks to be the favorite, although she hasn't declared her candidacy a candidacy for leadership of the federal conservatives. Uh, your thoughts on this? Surprised that uh, she is so far in front of everyone else? Uh, no, I'm not surprised. Also, she's a bit of a media darling, and I was going through my Twitter feed this morning, and somebody said, okay, mainstream media is promoting Ronna Ambrose. Is that... You know, is, are we listening to mainstream media? Because there's, they are the same group of people that uh, knocked Andrew Shear down and let Trudeau get away with blackface. So can we sort of put things into perspective? Now, listen, coming out first um, and being that darling at the beginning, you know, the the, the uh, convention I don't think is until April. Yeah. So you know that this is making for some interesting speculation and filling a news void because listen, before Christmas. You know, there's not that much news going on. But let's so, also remember she was interim leader and performed quite well in that role. Well, she did. So, A, she has had the, uh, lots of experience on many levels. You know, B, she was the interim leader, so she understands uh, what goes on there. You know, C, she is well-liked. D, she, is, she presents really well. So, you know, she ticks all the boxes. Yeah. And if the conservatives want to change from the typical... Uh, stereotype of what they usually put forward as a leader, she could very well be a safe choice. Uh, it certainly would be a good opportunity for them to reimage the whole party. Well, there's the reimaging part, that's the superficial part, but then there's the real hard part. Yeah. You know, what is that going to Yeah, you got to have policy. Yep, you got to have policy to reflect it, that's for sure. Exactly. It's going to change it on LGBTQ initiative, uh, yep. their views. Um, you know, their anti-abortion views, they're going to have an answer for that. I mean, you can dress it up, mm -hmm. and you can put some lipstick on it, Scott, but unless you walk the talk, it doesn't matter who's wearing the suit. Good point. Alyssa Freeman is with us, public relations consultant, Alyssa PR. Alyssa, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, I was talking earlier today about receiving a uh, phone call that said that my visa card had been compromised and I should hit nine right now and get this all worked out. And my first reaction was, well, this is a scam. So I hung up and then I started thinking about it. And, you know, I'm a bit of a worrier. So I thought I, I grabbed my Visa card and I phoned the number on the back and I said, hey, I just got this call. Just want to check and everything's okay. Nope, everything's good. Your last purchase was gas? Yes, that's me. Nope, not, a, not, not the case. No, uh, it was a scam. And the Visa people tell you that. There you go. It happens that quickly. Uh, it, it's amazing how cybersecurity uh, can be breached at various times. We've seen that with companies too. How many times have we talked about various companies that have had uh, their data breached in some way. Life Labs, a lab test provider, chances are you may have had some work done by them, say that personal information of an unknown number of customers in Canada have had their data stolen in a data breach. To talk more about this, Sean O'Shea is with us from Global News, and he is with us now. Sean, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Scott, good afternoon. Thanks for having me on. We are hearing more and more about this all the time. Are these companies ill-equipped to handle uh, today's world, or is it these criminals are so sophisticated they are staying one step ahead of these companies and their security practices? 
I think it's both. I think you've, you've, you've hit the nail on the head there. First of all, they are constantly trying to find new ways to infiltrate, to take information, to grab content, to steal from individual consumers. In a case like this, it's especially troubling because you as a customer of a lab, in this case Life Labs, you have no real control over the information once you give it to them. You fill out a form when you have your blood taken or uh, go to your doctor and the, and the blood is taken to the lab and you give your all of your most personal information, your name, your address, your health care information, your health situation you have to hope that they are going to protect your interests. And in this case, what we're seeing based on what Life Labs acknowledged, 15 million Canadians may be affected by this, 80,000 already in Ontario and British Columbia had their actual lab results uh, uh, stolen. This is particularly troubling, Scott. So some may say, uh, well, so now the world knows the result of my poop test. How does that affect me? Who cares? What does that mean for the average person? How does that affect me? Well, for the average person on what you just described, maybe it doesn't mean anything, but there's information that people speak to their doctor about. They could have various illnesses. They're being tested for certain things. Nobody, I think, most people would not want that information being disclosed or being potentially disclosed to people who would trade on it, who would use it. It's it's just, it's beyond the pale. And Ontario's former privacy commissioner, and Kavukian uh, told us uh, yesterday that these kinds of companies really have the most obligation to take mm. the highest level of precaution, to encrypt, to be so careful, because they're dealing with information that is the most personal to most people. Uh, so some may say, why does or- organized crime do this? Because how uh, how uh, valuable is that information beyond a personal standpoint? But this is obviously to hold companies ransom, as what's happened here. And you've, you've got it right on. Uh, a company like this, and, and in many cases, companies uh, don't pay ransom. Uh, we had a case just this past uh, October where three Ontario hospitals had their information uh, tied up by ransomware. One was Michael Guerin in Toronto and then two hospitals in Listowel, Wingham in southwestern Ontario. Uh, I know because I have uh, friends who are doctors at those hospitals, they had to basically get out of the computer system, do things by hand. To my knowledge, they did not pay the ransoms, but the information was not being held uh, hostage. It slowed things down. They worked around it. But again, this information is really great value for for the hackers who want to put pressure on and extract uh, a ransom from organizations that, let's face it, don't look good when something like this happens. Mm. What does an individual want? They want their information protected. They don't want their information stolen. That's what's happened here. Um, the, the thing I found troubling, too, was to find out this company actually paid the ransom. Does that make people safe, more safe, safer, or more more vulnerable? Because you've heard in the past... Uh, many scam artists will hit the same target twice. So why would you why would you uh, uh, pay a ransom and then not really know if someone's going to stand by that? Well, Charles Brown, who's the chief executive officer of Life Labs, was was basically put that question had that question put to him 
Um, and, and they can't guarantee that the information is not still out there or wouldn't be sold again. You're dealing with organized criminals, right? You don't have, there's no uh, code of ethics, code of conduct yeah. here. It's possible that, you know, they have, they have given the information back uh, temporarily and it's not a, a sure thing. A lot of security experts uh, say don't pay the ransom because it simply fuels this and it doesn't guarantee anything. They did it for their own reasons. They won't disclose how much they paid. They know there are no guarantees that the information still isn't floating out there in the dark web. The best they can do now, having lost the information initially, is to offer customers uh, dark web um, security consulting, um, that kind of thing, to sign up for systems that they're being provided. Again, it's no guarantee. How hung up can you as an individual be? Well, I've had conversations and communications with many customers this morning who said they're out there changing passwords on their um, various accounts. That's not a bad idea. I try to do it frequently, and frequently I do it because I can't remember my password, Scott. So exactly. that's one of the benefits of that. i got to be honest. You have to reset but, it. I hear you. But, <laughs> The, the, the memory reset, I call it. So people are doing that. I guess that's what you can do. You can sign up for these services. How valuable are those? Perhaps- How valuable are those services, Sean? And like, if you're a customer of Life Labs, I mean, should you be doing this? Should you be taking them up on this stuff? I mean, even if you've had a blood test a couple of years ago? My view is, Scott, if it's been offered, take advantage of it. One is uh, credit monitoring. So if somebody tries to get a credit card in your name with all of this treasure trove of information. Well, if you've put this monitoring on, they will not just issue a credit card, they will be obligated to contact you. This is the Credit Reporting Bureau. Of course, Equifax, when we're talking about hacking, was hacked itself in the last two years. So there's no limit to the number of hacks that can happen. I say yes, get everything you possibly can. It, again, is no guarantee, but you do everything possible that you can. Uh, some people may not even be aware that they're Life Labs customers. If you go to a family doctor and yeah. you have blood work done, for example, at the hospital, at the, at the office, as I do, it's sent out to a particular company. I have no idea what company that is. Life Labs claims to be the biggest in Canada. So you may be a Life Labs customer without ever setting foot in one of their clinics. So I say do as much as you possibly can to protect yourself. Do those password resets. Get in touch with the credit agent and the credit bureau through these uh, monitoring services if you can. You cannot take enough precaution when something like this happens. Uh, will Life Labs be notifying customers who they feel could be breached or is that everyone in Ontario and B.C.? My understanding is that they are notifying uh, customers. Uh, they notified the privacy commissioner back in on November the 1st. So they've known about this for a, a period of time. They have certain duties of obligation when they become aware of, of, of an infiltration. Uh, but I wouldn't rely on getting an email from somebody to take some kind of action yourself. Uh, check out the website, check our story we've got at globalnews.ca uh, for more information and links and that sort of thing. Uh, but you know, just don't rely on other agencies. Take as much precaution as you can. I think this is also another reminder about providing more information to organizations than you absolutely have to. Hmm. Obviously, you have to give your health care number when you're getting blood work done. Obviously, there's a certain amount of information. But if you don't have to provide everything, don't. If you're limited, if you don't have to provide an email address to an organization, don't do it. If you don't have to provide all your phone numbers, don't. Limit as much as possible the information you give to organizations so that if there is a problem, such as what we're seeing right now, they have the minimal amount of information on you. 
Good advice. Sean O'Shea has been with us from Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 530 and 6 for more on all of this. Sean, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Scott, thanks very much. Have a great day. You too. Life Labs, uh, a test provider that your doctor may use. Uh, many have, whether it's uh, blood work or what have you, uh, have now announced there has been a security breach and data stolen from their servers. Uh, we're going to continue with this. Let's bring in David uh, Mason, Canada Country Manager for Dark Trace, and is with us now. David, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, hi there. What is Dark Trace? Dark Trace, we're a cybersecurity company and we use artificial intelligence to find threats on networks and stop them within seconds. So, so what is, in this sort of situation, because my goodness, we've certainly heard lots of this over the yep. years, uh, is this a company that is ill-equipped to, uh, to provide security for its uh, customers in today's world, or is this uh, the organized crime, is this, is this tech crime just staying one step ahead of security? Uh, the advantage is always with the hands of the attacker, and we have to pretty much have to accept that most of the time. The question of whether they're ill-equipped, uh, the, the question better is who is equipped. We've seen so many organizations get hacked, and we're talking big organizations. I noticed that Sean from Global was talking about Equifax there. Yeah, yeah. That's a big big outfit. They've got a lot of budget. They've got a lot of resource. They've got a lot of people to deal with this thing, but they got hacked big time. Capital One Bank, a lot of budget, a lot of resource, a lot of people mm. on this gig. And they got hacked big time, and 6 million Canadians lost their credit card details. Is anybody uh, actually equipped enough? <laughs> Probably never enough to deal with these issues. So it's not a surprise at all that uh, an organization that has the records of 50 million Canadians has been hacked. It's not a surprise, unfortunate to say. So this is the world that we now live in. Do we just assume that over our lifetime we're, about, we're bound to get hit at least once? Uh, yeah, probably once and uh, more often. Um, as a company, we it's for us, it's not a case of, you know, we are going to be hacked. We actually say you've already been hacked, but you just don't know that it's happened. Yeah, this is pretty much going to be a fact of life. But if you think about it, the world, we're so interconnected now. Everybody is interconnected. But in many ways, cyber is our life. Uh, I'm sitting you in, a, in an office building where effectively I'm sitting inside a machine because everything around me, including me, is all connected to the internet. Yeah. So in many ways, it, this is a fact of life, man. You talked about already been hacked. What do you mean? The scale of threat that we're facing right now is huge. It is absolutely massive. And there's a pretty good chance that we've all got something on our computer somewhere. I mean, there's a really, really good chance of that. Hacking on computers has been going on for decades now. And what you need to remember is when there's some new fancy virus comes out. So people have heard of viruses called WannaCry and Patreon, yep. not Patreon. They all have a Rook, Rook. There's a big ransomware that's going around right now. These things don't come out, happen, and then die. They're there forever. They're constantly out there. So every virus that's been invented over the last 30 years is always flying around there. So there's a pretty good chance we've all got something on our computers. What are your thoughts about this company paying the ransom? Um, d d because, again, you hear many situations if, if uh, a, a criminal gets a hold of yep. something and a, and, and a good bite, they're going to go back there again. So your thoughts on actually paying the ransom? It's interesting that they have paid a ransom. Um, at first blush, this looked like a ransomware attack where bad guys come in, encrypt your data, and in order to get it back, you have to pay a ransom. It's curious that now that starts to sound not like a ransomware attack, but the bad guy, the threat actors got something, took it away, and they paid uh, to get it back. Right, should you pay or shouldn't you pay? Uh, law enforcement will, will advise you not to pay. 
But you know what? It's going to have to be a decision made by an organisation or an individual on the day. They've got to weigh up the pluses and minuses um, uh, before they decide whether they're going to pay or not. And usually the reason people pay is because it's the only option they've got. That's what I was just about. That was about what I I was about to ask you, David. Is that is it a case of getting back what they've lost? In other words, we've lost something, but we can get it back just by paying this, as opposed to digging and trying to find it ourselves. It's just easier to pay to to get what you've lost back. It's maybe not necessarily the word easier. It may be the only option. They've tried everything else, Mm. and this is the only option. It's a little bit surprising because you think an organisation at Life Labs would back up their data. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so they've got a copy somewhere else. How many how many times have we heard that? Even from, you well, know, your own personal stuff. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you've lost your wedding photographs. Did yep. you back them up? Mm-hmm. Uh, no. So you'd think they've backed them up. And I, I can't believe that they don't back up the data. But they've obviously felt that we needed to pay to get this back. Was it the only copy? I'd be surprised. You'd also expect that the data would be encrypted. And if it's encrypted, it's useless to the um the threat actors. Hmm. But they still pay. They've obviously said we're going to have. We need to get this back. We're going to have to pay. And, and they, so and that would be the reason for them paying is not so much to get them off their back and to stop them from doing this, but to get back information that they've actually taken and they don't have a copy of. Maybe, but we don't know. We don't know. Yeah, the company's been very often and said we've paid right. a ransom to get the data back. Um, they've probably, I mean, with a very heavy heart, they've done that because. They clearly felt they needed to. What about insurance for this sort of thing? Well, insurance is great. Um, insurance will, uh, I mean, it'll pay if you've lost all your computers. It'll pay to get your, you know, buy new computers, buy new networks, set you up. But what insurance can't do is buy back your reputation. It can't back by the trust of your, uh, your customers and your clients. Um, a cyber insurance is a good thing to have. Even better is have adequate protection in the first place. So you don't mm. need to call on that uh, insurance. But it won't buy back your reputation. And one of the things that um, obviously Life Labs has done very, very quickly is said, we're going to, as, as your previous uh, uh, correspondent was saying, you know, here's help. We'll do credit monitoring. We'll do um, uh, fraud theft monitoring, uh, identity theft monitoring for you. And they've offered that absolutely immediately. If you remember the Desjardins hack back right. earlier this yep. year, Desjardins, with a, with, in a heartbeat, offered that kind of protection, not just to those who've been affected, to absolutely everybody in the bank. Because an organization like Life Labs and Days of Land, they cannot afford for customers to walk away. Your share price will drop when this kind of thing happens, but mm. your share price usually comes back up again. But if your customers walk away, you're in real trouble, and you've got to show that you're prepared to go do whatever it takes um, to support your clients. Is it up to the customer to be proactive and go after that and go after those services that they have provided, they have offered? Again, as uh, you pre- um, uh, Sean was saying earlier on, if they're offering this, go take it. Yeah. As much as you can. If it's on offer, go and take it. Uh, absolutely. There's a few other things that um, I didn't I didn't hear the whole conversation previously, but for anybody who's using Life Labs, uh, of course, some of us don't know that we've actually yeah. used Life Labs. You just want to be a little bit more aware in the short to medium future. Uh, right. Just be a little bit more aware about emails you get, texts you get, phone calls you get, and just be cautious. Man, it seems you don't know who to trust these days. I was just saying uh, prior to this whole segment, I was uh, in my home office today, got a phone call telling me my Visa card had been compromised and to hit nine to follow up and get all the details of all of this. I immediately thought, well, this is a scam and I hung up. But then I thought, "Uh, I better check this. And I grabbed my Visa card and phoned the number on the back. And of course, it was a scam. But boy, it's especially this time of the year. It's so immediate. Your first reaction is just to do something rather than think. 
And that's what um, scammers and fraud scammers do. They they will they, when they approach you, they'll make it they'll, they'll inject an element of urgency and panic and and the desire. I've got to do something right now hoping that you won't engage your brain with your fingers and your mouth and yeah. make mistakes, and then they can get that to your hack. David Mason has been with us, Canada Country Manager for Dark Trace, talking about Life Labs uh, being hacked and paying the ransom uh, in order to get their business back up and running. David, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're welcome. See you next time. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.